Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 240th episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a British actress who has been on Hollywood's A-list for the last 15 years. Ever since she burst onto the scene in Bend It Like Beckham, The Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, and Love Actually, all within one year. Over the time since, she has done standout work as consistently as just about anyone, in films like Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, The Duchess, Never Let Me Go, A Dangerous Method, Anna Karenina, Begin Again, The Imitation Game, and now Colette, a film about the creative and sexual awakening of the trailblazing 18th century French author of the same name, which had its world premiere at January's Sundance Film Festival, which screened again last week at the Toronto International Film Festival, and which Bleecker Street will begin rolling out in the U.S. on Friday. I'm talking, of course, about the two-time acting Oscar nominee and two-time anchor of a Best Picture Oscar nominee, who also happens to be one of my very favorite actresses, Kara Knightley. Over the course of our conversation at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills, the 33-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, including how acting helped her to overcome dyslexia, what she learned from the only acting lesson she ever received from her father, how sudden celebrity led to paparazzi scrutiny, which in turn led to PTSD, a breakdown, and a decision to temporarily step away from her career, how she subsequently overcame stage fright and learned to stop caring what other people think, why she has consistently gravitated towards period piece costume dramas, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kara, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Teddington, which is a suburb of London, and my mother is a writer and my father is an actor. And... I was reading in prep for this. The only reason you were permitted to be conceived was because they were working. Is this correct? Or your mother was? Yeah. So my mom had been an actress and they'd had my brother and they couldn't afford to have another baby. So my dad said to my mom, you need to write a play. She was writing a bit and she said, and if you sell the play, then we can, we'll have another kid, but otherwise we're not having it. (laughs) So she wrote the play and it, it actually turned into a huge success and she won lots of awards for it. And it was called When I Was a Girl, I Used to Scream and Shout. And I am the child. The ultimate royalty. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess in seriousness, though, you've talked about the fact that having parents as artists, you saw that there can be very dry periods where, you know, maybe you're not going to pay rent or it's going to be harder to eat. Why then, from a very early age, do you think you were attracted to this? 
I, I think it's a difficult thing not to be attracted to. I mean, particularly my parents came from a very political theatre background. And I think that there was a sense in the house that, you know, through art, through theatre, through film, you could change the world. So it felt like a very powerful thing to do. But also, you know, the image of my mum kind of disappearing into her imagination, which was always this place that I couldn't get to and I always kind of felt jealous of. I think I wanted to be a part of that place that as a kid I couldn't quite reach. How early were you requesting to reach that place? So apparently at three, I asked for an agent (laughs) and I didn't get one until I was six. So I had to wait for years. Yes. How did you even know what an agent, I guess just from seeing your parents work with agents? Yeah, you know, and they were always around the house and phoning up and I would answer the phone and it would be your mum's agent. And I'd be like, well, why why don't I have one? (laughs) Well, in terms of getting into this yourself at about the same time you started working, it sounds like there was also a discovery in the family about you and just about something that might affect your ability to act. This is a pretty interesting, it's come up a lot in episodes that we've done with actors on this podcast. And I just wonder if you can share, you know, what your... Do you mean dyslexia? I do. (laughs) Yeah, dyslexia. So my parents did not want to get me an agent when I was small and they did not want me to be a child actress, but I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was six. And I had a very brilliant teacher called David Cooper at my my small school. And he said, you need to find a carrot to dangle in front of this child. So do you know what she wants? Because that's the only way that we're going to get her to read and we're going to get her to work. And my mum said, well, she wants an agent. And he said, well, I think you better get her one then. (laughs) So it was always I was allowed to act if my grades went up. But if they went down, then I wasn't allowed to go to auditions. So it was absolutely used as the incentive all the way along to when I finished school. And it's kind of amazing, though, that before that discovery, when they thought you were reading or doing things. So I was actually top of all my classes and they thought (laughs) that I was some sort of genius because I would stand up and from a really young age, I would read to the class. Yeah. And I think that I thought I was reading, but actually it transpired that what I'd done was memorize exactly the words in the book. And when and my mum is a writer, so, you know, we always had tons of books in the house and I literally memorized all of them mm-hmm. perfectly, mm-hmm. page by page. Wow. And they only found out that I wasn't reading when new books came in. Well, it was the early practice nobody... for acting. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. yeah. So you started acting, as you say, said at six. It sounds like it started out with commercials, maybe some small stuff on no, TV. No, I was never allowed commercials. No? No. So I did like little tiny parts in dramas. Oh, OK. Was always, what okay. I, you know, sort for of running TV. for TV, yeah. running in and going, hello, mummy, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> and this was over summers, right? Because you're not allowed to yeah. miss school. No, I wasn't allowed to miss school. Or if I if I was missing school, it was only a little bit. So that's why, like, I wasn't allowed to do anything like commercials because that would have been out at weird times. So I was allowed to do a job in my summer holidays. And I interviewed you one time prior, 2011, and you said at that time that the project that really hooked you was one when you were 12. Yeah, which was called Coming Home. And it was a TV film with, or a TV two-parter, actually, with Peter O'Toole and Joanna Lumley. Yeah, and I loved it. And Paul Bettany. What um, was it? Just the the whole experience? I think the whole experience. We were in Cornwall for, like, one of those magical kind of summers. And I loved everybody on it. I made friends on it. And I just loved... I think it was also the first time that I'd actually played a part, you know, before it had been very much, like, one line running in and right, running right, out, right. whereas this was the first sort of character that I'd got. And I just absolutely loved every second of it. And And it really, I don't think was that long after that, that suddenly from starting in these run on for a second parts to coming home to Star Wars with George Lucas. I actually did Star Wars at the same time as I did coming home. So I was doing coming home and loving coming home. And then and then I got Star Wars, but I didn't know what I'd got in Star Wars because it was all a big secret. But I mean, just the fact that you're 
in any way hearing about Star Wars yeah. must have blown your mind. Yes, it did blow my mind. Yeah. And my, it was actually my mum and dad did not want me to do it at all. And it was my brother that was like, she has to do it. It's Star Wars. Why didn't they want you to do it? I think they thought I'd be very bored and they were <laughs> right. <laughs> there wasn't really anything to do. You know, right. I was I was Natalie Portman's double, right. but actually used as her stand in a lot. And again, because you didn't know what you were saying yes to, it was kind of a, or I never understood really why I was in the same clothes. You know, right. it, it was it didn't really become a parent decoy queen. yeah the decoy yes. queen so the true turning point i guess or point of no return was 15 you leave school yeah which means that that's just the result of work steadily coming in at that well, point i left at 17 actually so i i started getting big roles when i was 15 okay but i still managed another two years of school whilst playing with big roles and then when i got to 17 i got a tv version of dr zhivago yes. playing lara in yeah. dr zhivago and that was when i suddenly realized that i couldn't do the two things at once and i meant to take a year out do that and then return and I've still never I have yet to return. <laughs> and and just to further connect the dots, I think after Zhivago was this movie that ended up going direct to, to video, but had a very important function in a way, the whole, right? Because So it was actually before. So the whole I did okay. when I was yeah, it's all very it's confusing. Like it I know all, all happening it all at sort once. of happening at once, but the whole actually happened when that that was when I was fifteen. And it was the whole that then got me bend it like Beckham That's when I was sixteen. That's what I 16. wanted to ask you because yeah. so so really, Gurinder Chada saw that yeah. and says you still have to audition, but I'd like to see you, yeah. right? And that obviously was the one that for most people, I guess, around the world was their introduction to you. Bend it like Beckham. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah, comes out when you're seventeen and was really considered a, a breakout hit. But I know yeah. from from your perspective, I've read. It wasn't, you know, all bask in the glory of that. In fact, for the first time, really, people, critics specifically, are starting to put you under the microscope and say, you know, okay, so who is this person? And I just want to actually quote back to you something that you said, because I thought it was pretty interesting. I want to ask you more about it. Yeah. You said, quote, Bennett Like Beckham came out when I was 17, and I only saw about two reviews, but they both said, she's pretty and she can't act for shit. Yeah. It's only when I look back on it that I realize how much it really did affect me because I didn't have very much self-confidence. You already feel unsure of yourself, I guess, you know, at 17. Yeah. And then you see your worst fears in print. It really knocked me, which is why I think I was working, working, working because I was trying to run away from the fact that I thought I couldn't do it, close quote. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, if you're talking about any 17-year-old, they don't necessarily have a complete sense of self yet. It's, you know, the whole point of that early sort of adulthood, late childhood is to become oneself. And when you're becoming that person and suddenly, you know, you're hearing other people's views of you the entire time. And unfortunately, you're paying attention because you're still at that point where other people's opinions matter right. because you're a teenager right. and it's all about the group, isn't it? And when it feels like the group sort of turns against you, I think it knocks that burgeoning sense of self in quite a extreme way that if you don't have a very good support system, I think people don't recover from. Right. And I think I've been very, very, very lucky in my family. I mean, like beyond lucky because they gave me an absolute backbone for that period when I literally felt like I was worthless. Which is kind of mind blowing because to the outsider, it looks like you're on top of the world. You've yeah, got that breakthrough. Then immediately afterwards, I guess as a result is Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. 
Elizabeth Swan, of course. And, uh, love, and love Actually. I mean, and I, love that, actually that run of films were, was completely insane, yeah. But again, it's sort of, it's amazing looking back at it from the outside. You're like, whoa, that was hit after hit right. after hit, you know. But from the inside, all you're hearing is the criticism, really. And also, you know, I was... I was aware that I didn't know what I was doing, you know? Mm -hmm. I didn't know my trade. I didn't know my craft. I knew that there was something that worked mm -hmm. sometimes, but I didn't know how to kind of capture that. Well, you've said the only, you know, training in a sense, the only acting lesson you ever had was sort of just before Pride and Prejudice, yeah. right? What was that? It was my dad <laughs> who sat me down and, you know, he's a trained actor. So took me through probably actually the, the basics of Stanislavski, yeah. you know, the, the questions that yeah. you should be asking a character. But, you know, even like Pride and Prejudice. So I played that when I was 19 and I think it worked, but I didn't realise why it worked. And it was because that was a, a character that I'd been obsessed with since I was about 10. I knew that character inside out, around around. I used to play doll's houses. My doll's house was Pemberley. I would, <laughs> I mean, basically be doing improvisations on those characters mm -hmm. all the time. So actually what I didn't realise at the time and which now makes sense is that I'd done the work for that for years, for you, you know, ready. which was why I sort of stepped into it and it made complete sense. But it took me years to figure out that that's actually what I'd done. <laughs> well, it's interesting because that was maybe the one where the industry first started to show you a little respect, right? But yeah. I want to talk about the years starting with Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, The Curse of the Black Pearl, which is 2003. Yeah. And then, as you say, Love Actually right on top of that. And then a series of other sort of, I guess you would call genre movies where yeah. it, just let's go one by one, I guess. Okay. So first of all, it's can you believe it's 15 years ago this summer that Pirates kind of put you on the global map? Yeah, you're going to give away my age. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I wish we could all change as little as you changed. Oh, that's very sweet. <laughs> yeah, but, I know. It's mad. Yeah. So on that one, you were... I guess so. Eighteen when seventeen, 17 when, when making we filmed it. it, yeah. Chaperone by your yeah. mom. Yep. This is on a scale unlike anything up to that point, right? Jerry Bruckheimer doesn't mess around. Yep. First time in corsets, which would become an interesting theme. We'll yes. get to. What did you make of it all? It must have been a little overwhelming. I mean, it was overwhelming. It was. Just, it was. It was absolutely amazing. You know, I loved it. I was unbelievably tired mm -hmm. because I think the call times were like four thirty in the morning, <laughs> and you know we were traveling for miles. And so, I mean, I really remember the kind of first time of experiencing unbelievable tiredness, which would become a theme throughout <laughs> the rest of my life. Um, but no, I mean, I was. It just felt unreal. I remember when my agent first said that you're going up for it, and I and I I remember saying, "What's the point? I'm never going to get that." And actually, the audition for it. I was late and I'm I'm not a late person. I'm an always on time person. Mm -hmm. And I was late and I was angry and I didn't want to be there. And the whole and I think obviously whatever that vibe of just like there is no point right. in this <laughs> clearly like worked. Right. And then I suddenly got a call going, actually you've got to fly over to New York to meet Jerry Bruckheimer and then you've got to fly to LA and they're gonna pay for you and your mum to go and you know, and it was all just so weird. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing the first read through which was at the Viper Room in L.A. With and, Johnny. With Johnny, yeah, yeah. And sitting next to Johnny at the table and thinking, they're going to fire me. Like, there's <laughs> no way that this is going to keep going. And it did. But, you know, I equally remember at the time, my, nobody was very excited by it. I mean, they were excited yeah. because Johnny had decided to do it, which meant that everybody was like, oh, that's interesting because mm -hmm. he doesn't do that kind of thing. But it was based on a Disney theme mm -hmm. park ride. Like, I remember telling my friends about it and them going, why would you do that? It's like, <laughs> that's the end of your career. Right. I mean, like, that's a terrible idea. And thinking, yes. Yeah, 
probably is a terrible idea, but whatever. We're well, even go on there. the set, though, people are looking at what Johnny was doing. I've read no, it and been like, yeah. what the hell? No, he got called in at the beginning and, and he was like, look, you have to fire me because this is the only way I can right. play this character. And if you don't want it, then fine. But this is going to be it. You know, so we were all kind of looking going, well, he's gone. That's mental. And I don't know what's going on. Yeah. And you were able to, it sounds like, in some ways, push like your part beyond the archetypal just stock character the, the way new york times ended up calling it quote a 21st century girl in an 18th century world yeah, close quote go. but just basically the idea that it's not just a damsel in distress we're gonna kind of assert her a little more as you know a action a, hero action in her thing. own way yeah i mean i'd like to say that that was me that did that but that wasn't always much. in the script no, you know i mean no. that's just what the character was and okay. i think again my anger at even going for the audition clearly showed that I, I had some of that in right. me. But yeah, and I think, you know, being 17 and it was a very cool, it was cool. I loved doing the action. Like I loved it. I thought it was, and working with all the stunt guys was amazing. Yeah. And then Love Actually, Richard Curtis has said that you were on that while you were waiting for Pirates to come out and had said, yeah, I'm in, uh, uh, he's like, what do you have coming next? Or you felt you were in a disaster of a Pirates yeah. movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm in a career ender right. and I'm 17. <laughs> yeah. But that one, would you ever have imagined that one would take on the life that it's had? Love Actually is mad. I mean, yeah. Love Actually, weirdly, you know, it had a lot of anticipation around it when we did it because it was the first time Richard was directing. Yeah. And it was quite a surprise when it came out that it didn't actually do as well as people anticipated, particularly here. I mean, in America, it really mm -hmm. didn't do well. So I think, you know, the lifespan, it's an early lesson that the lifespan of something, it, it can live a life beyond right. when it first comes out. Because, I mean, it's bigger here than it is in the UK. Really? I mean, it's so huge here. It's it's amazing. And so many people are like, oh, I watched it <laughs> 10 million times, you know. So I just a TV thing? People saw it on TV? Yeah, I think, I yeah. think. And it just it got on that, that kind of Christmas classic. Yeah. Yeah. It just kind of suddenly found its place to be that thing, which is amazing. And it's funny how people, you know, they forget how movies are actually made. So you, you had said in one thing, you are doing your storyline. You feel like it's your movie. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, I was with Chiotel Ejiofor and uh, Andrew Lincoln, and we'd had such a nice time. And I'd sort of known... Andrew a little bit before that anyway I had a friend of him, you know friend in common or something and we had like it was like doing a really lovely short film and then all of a sudden everybody else turned up it's like right. wait what's going <laughs> Get out on of yeah right so when Pirates came out it was obviously massive exceeded all expectations how did your personal life change as a result of that now being quite famous yourself and how did you handle that I didn't handle it well. You know, I think you're young and you don't experience it. And you, people say, what do you want? And you go, oh, I want fame and fortune, mm -hmm. you know. And and I think fortune is lovely. <laughs> and there's no problem with that right. at all. But the fame side of it, I found, like, like I said, you know, I think 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, you're still, you're very much becoming. Your sense of self is you're still half a child, you know, and you're exploring things and you're trying to push boundaries. And that's what that time is about and then suddenly when there's a kind of a glare and an opinion and and actually literally physically being followed around by 20 guys mm -hmm. who are deeply misogynistic mm -hmm. I think it was a really rude awakening to the world of misogyny that in my upbringing of being very sort of left-wing kind of inclusive sort of you know I'd never experienced that level of hatred on a day-to-day -day basis. When you say misogynistic what kind of stuff are you talking about? Oh I mean literally men shouting at me calling me a whore. 
I mean, the paparazzi are doing. Yeah, that? because it was a point. You know, that point was, you had Amy Winehouse, mm-hmm. you had Britney Spears having a mental breakdown, mm-hmm. you had, you know, it was big money to get pictures of women falling apart because you wanted them to be sexy, but you wanted to punish them for that sexuality, and that's a point in men and women's life that you're exploring sexuality for the first time with your clothing, with your behaviour, with everything, you know. And suddenly there was a lot of money to get these girls if you like, quote unquote, behaving badly. And if you weren't breaking down in front of them, then it was worth their while to make you break down in front of them. And there's a lot of money as well if if they can force your boyfriend or your father or your brother to physically hurt them mm-hmm. because of the stuff that they're saying to you. You know, there's a lot of money that they can make from suing mm-hmm. as well. So suddenly there was a level of violence, mm-hmm. it felt, in the air that is not a thing that anybody would react to well. No. And a lot of people try and self-medicate mm-hmm. to get through it. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, if you didn't have the amazing family that I've got, then probably I, I may have gone down that path, but I absolutely didn't. And I think I've always had a fuck you button. Yeah. And I so knew, it was so obvious that they wanted me to fall and I had such like a, I am not going to, I'm not going to give you what you want. So there was a sense of like battle every day of like leaving the house. And, and that kind of, that was in the work as well. It was like, I am going to prove to you that I can do this. I know I'm not there yet, but I am going to make this through and I'm going to keep standing and you are not going to take me down. There was a real kind of fight. It is amazing that, that you did not explode in the way that some people do but you've said in another interview quote i think it broke something in me i knew it was part of the deal in the life i had signed up for but the fear of it has never left me close quote yeah i mean i did i did have a mental breakdown at 22 you know so i did take a year off there and was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and you know everything yeah because of all of that stuff and it was amazing when i finally you know and i i went deep into therapy and all that and she said she said it's it's amazing i normally come in here and you know i have people that think people are talking about them and they think that they're being followed but actually they're not she said you're the first person (laughs) and actually that is happening to and she said a wonderful thing which was like the world has gone absolutely crazy around you and actually you're dealing with it pretty well and I was like oh thank you that gave me like a okay you're not crazy you're not going crazy this is quite difficult to deal with so I took a year off at that point and um and just re-evaluated and very much stepped back from big budget films yeah but I guess on a practical level for an actress how tough does it make your job I mean part of what I think makes actors, it sounds like, especially if they haven't gone through all the years of training in theaters, drama school and whatever, part of what you need to be a good actress is to be able to see people behaving naturally and and process that. Now you can't go out and have people behave naturally around you. No. So how did that affect things? Yes, that affected things. You know, yeah, it's very strange because it, it felt like a wall, you know, that you couldn't see beyond. And it was literally, you know, a wall of cameras in front yeah. of you. And it did affect things. But, you know, I think as you go along... I just realized what I needed, which was space. And that was, you know, when I was 22 and I went, I really need to just go. And I literally left in the middle of the night with a backpack and went traveling for a year. And and actually, you know, no makeup, funny glasses, you know, just very much. I've got I've got a stoop from that year because I hid. So I, I really got good at hiding in a crowd very well. But that gave me that space that I needed to then actually be able to start again and go because I did feel like I'd come to the end of the line in that little first period of I putting things out without getting what I needed back 
And I think I'm very conscious of that now that as a, a creative and whatever that is, there's there's only so much that you can chuck out before you need to feed yeah, yeah. yourself. So that year was sort of one of the most important years of my life because it was like, oh, I can breathe and I can actually see and I can start feeding stuff yeah. in as opposed to just kind of trying to project. Can you pinpoint when that year happened in relation to a few other movies because it seems like either by your own choice or at the advice of you know people around you who are trying to help you mold a career you leaned in for a little while it seems like after the first pirates to the idea of doing the sort of genre-ish big movies i mean i'm talking about king arthur where you're back with jerry bruckheimer that came out in the year after pirates i'm talking about the jacket first time with an american accent but kind of a thriller I guess type thing certainly Domino that same in 2005 as well were those before that year and also they they were before that I figured so yeah so I was 19 when I did Domino I think I was 18 when I did the jacket I mean that the jacket was my first choice okay so the first time that I'd made a decision I'd been offered a load of things and that was my first choice you know and I liked it because uh, it was 18 and therefore yeah. I felt pretty, pretty dark <laughs> and you know you want something that speaks to that so I was like oh it's dark and cool and you know I want to be this dark and cool person and I love doing that I made one of my best closest friends Massey Tajuddin who was mm-hmm. the writer on that is still one of my best and closest friends so you know it was it, that was amazing and then Domino again I really enjoyed at that point I loved the action yeah. and I loved you know I think and it's a funny way of putting it, but I think I was the female version of an angry young man. Yeah. I still am in a funny way, you know, <laughs> and it felt like Domino at that point when I was 19. And that's what I felt like. I wanted that. I wanted as a woman to be able to play that part that you're just, you know, you're the action lead. You're the kick ass. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I absolutely like loved it just felt cool. And Tony Scott was cool. He yeah. was such a cool dude, you yeah. know? And so, and what, I loved working with Mickey Rourke. And so, you know, the film didn't do that well, but but whatever, it yeah. was like, it was an extraordinary experience. So I did that just after I did Pride and Prejudice. In fact, I literally, the day I finished Pride and Prejudice, I went on to Domino. And so the year though off happened after King Arthur. King Arthur had happened before that. So that was when I was 18. That was King Arthur happened straight after Pirates. I went straight on to King Arthur. And so the year So was... the year off happened when I was up for a Golden Globe and a BAFTA for Atonement. Oh, so that was actually quite a ways in. Oh, yeah, it was quite a ways in. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'd managed to like battle through yeah, for, for like yeah for five years. I didn't realize that. I'd I'd been battling, and then it was yeah, and then it was finally the final straw was right. around. So you didn't. I would. I think the reason I'm surprised is that I would have assumed that if that kind of thing is going to really bother you, it's going to or affect you, which it would for most people. That would happen much earlier than that. Yeah, you you held up for I, a long time. I really worked back to back to back to back. Yeah. And the sort of the reason that I worked back to back was because that was my way of coping with the other thing. Because if I was on a film set, then there was sort of safety yeah. on the film set. The problem was when I was off the film set, because then they were around my house the whole time, right. you know. And also, if I was working that much, then I wasn't available to do all the publicity right, people wanted right, me to do. Right. But, but then the publicity would always catch up. Yeah, and so, yeah, you can't get out of it. It's still coming, you know. Right. So I, I think it was, there's a safety in that film bubble. But again, it's not re- it's not enough. It's not actually real life, right. you know. So as much as you can have some amazing experiences, essentially it's always going to catch up. All right. So let's hone in, though, for a second on Pride and Prejudice because that was, you know, as we mentioned earlier, 
you didn't feel that you were getting the respect that I think you were now getting in a different way as a result of that. But let's just mention, I remember, I guess, so I'm, I think, exactly the same age as you. And I was in first year of college and I went with somebody on a date to see that. And I was like, this was... I've been reluctant to go. I was, this is not what yeah, would have no, been my first choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought I was amazed because I didn't. I, it made me see you in a whole new light, and I enjoyed the movie. Was great. This yep. was your first time with Joe Wright yep. of, of three, who I think you've now more than anybody else, right? Yeah. His directorial debut. Yeah. And then the way it sounds, we just as I I mentioned in Toronto, we just did an episode with Rosamund yep. Pike, and she's saying you Carrie Mulligan. It was sort of like a group of people who became very close over the period of that yeah. shoot. Everybody's kind of falling in love with everybody else. Rosamund was, was with Joe at the time. Yeah. I think you were with Rupert. I ended up off, after afterwards. The after the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, <laughs> yeah. what's your, as you look back on the making of that one, was that a particularly good experience? Yeah, it was magic. It was like, a, it was again, it was one of those magic summers in England when, you know, normally the weather is terrible and the weather <laughs> was suddenly like smiling the entire summer. And I mean, for me, it was the first time that I'd been with a group of people who were my own age, mm-hmm. who were all interested in the same thing. Mm-hmm. Again, not having been to like college yeah. or any of that, you know, so it was the first time that I'd experienced that camaraderie of like, yeah, of just people my own age and, and how they behaved and how <laughs> I was allowed to behave or not right. allowed to behave, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So it was really utterly magic I mean coupled with that there was a lot of pressure on me because everybody at the time was like she is not good enough to play that part that's outrageous that she's doing it that and I really felt that kind of stuff so my my time on it was amazing and Mm -hmm. incredible because Mm -hmm. of the people but equally I remember the pressure very very clearly of like and sitting there and having days of of just being like, they're right and I can't do this. And then having days where it was like, no. And, you know, and I remember Carrie Mulligan and her friend who were on there and she said, I remember her saying that, you know, people think you can't do this and you can do this, you can do this. (laughs) Thank you very much for saying that. (laughs) That means a lot. Because, yeah, I slightly feel like I might be drowning in the middle of it. But um, Well, and it wasn't a validation to then end up with Critics' Choice, Golden Globe, Oscar nomination, like third youngest person ever to get a... Best Actress nomination, yeah. you couldn't really enjoy it. Well, there was like a whoa. I mean, particularly when that Oscar nomination, apart from that, I was then on Pirates 2 and we were on night shoots. And again, the exhaustion level was so I remembered getting it first thing in the morning and literally turning around. Going, yeah, that's great. And falling back to sleep. And being... <laughs> no, it was ama- It was amazing. And it, there was a particular validation, but it was still very confusing because it was still you're getting all of these nominations for all of these things. But press-wise, when I'm going into interviews, people are still saying everybody thinks you're shit. Or focusing on looks or, or things like that. Or focusing on your looks or focusing on what's wrong about you, you know. And again, I was 19. <laughs> so, you know, you're just kind of going like, you can only hear the negative stuff. You really can't hear the positive, which is mad. And as you get older, you go, you know, you can silence the negative stuff. And right. then, you know, but but at 19, you're still in that hormonal state of the, the pack mentality matters, you know. So as much as people are going, here, have this award. Right. Also, I'm hearing the stuff about you look horrible. You are crap. You've just got lucky with that one. Look, Pirates 2 came out. She's terrible in Pirates 2. You know, so it was all such a strange kind of extreme 
difference yeah, of yeah. opinions that as 19, 20 year olds, you're kind of being buffeted between. And I don't think I could find my sense of self yeah, in lost. the center of that. Yeah, I felt pretty much like actually I sort of didn't exist. And I was this weird creature with this weird face that people seem to <laughs> respond to in quite an extreme way. And I couldn't quite figure any of it out. Well, two years after that was atonement. Yeah. And back with Joe Wright, people will, you know, there's certain images that you know, may flash in people's mind. They remember the green dress and the yeah. cinematography. Some of those shots are I'm unbelievable. Yeah, the tracking amazing. shot on Dunkirk and yeah. ultimately gets a Best Picture nomination. That's the first of, I think, the two out with Imitation Game as mm-hmm. well. And to me, it's crazy that it wasn't another Best Actress. But you've said, quote, it's the first film I've done where I've actually felt any confidence whatsoever, close quote. Yeah. Was that because you knew the director actually knew what you could do and still wanted you? Yeah. I think that had a lot to do with it. And I also, I think that was a character that I saw very clearly. And actually, you know, he'd wanted me to play the middle Bryony. And it was the first time that I went, no, I want to play Cecilia. Mm -hmm. And I know that I can do that. And I had a very clear vision of what she would be. And again, and he went, okay, I trust you then, fine. Mm -hmm. And that was huge. You know, that was so huge. That was huge for me personally, as a kind of just like, okay, do your thing. And a kind of part that, maybe required prep in a way different than other things before that? Yeah, because it was stylized. So it was that like 1940s stylized thing. And again, I'd loved that cinema as, you know, my mum and dad had been showing me that. So again, it did require more prep. I think I was good at it and I understood it because I'd had, like, that's the stuff that I'd been watching since I was tiny. So, like, what are we talking about? Brief Encounter? So, Brief Encounter, yeah, Colonel Blimp. You know, like, all of those weird, that weird accent that Mm -hmm. those British actors at that time and the clipped and the speed and, you know, all of that. And so I think, again, I didn't quite realise that actually I had a real sense and a real knowledge of that, that I wasn't quite... I didn't realise that that's why I could see the character as clearly as I could because I was like, oh, wait, I've got a wealth of... Of, of yeah, of knowledge here that yeah. I can kind of draw on. A year after that is the Duchess. That's when I felt I was sinking. <laughs> well, I want I do want to ask you why that was, but just to set it up, you were now I think twenty three playing somebody from seventeen through. I think I, I don't was twenty two when I did it 20- because I feel like my crash came just after that, so it would have. Actually, I can't quite remember. That whole period's a bit hazy, but yeah, I was. I think I was about twenty two when I did it. It was definitely after atonement. I just didn't know what I was doing. Because basically the way at least it was promoted was this is sort of a the Princess Diana of her time. Yeah. She it was actually Diana's great, 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 great aunt. Great aunt something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, ironically, because of what you're saying you were going through, the story of somebody who's publicly adored but privately miserable. Cracking up. Yeah. yeah, so actually it clearly like it spoke to me yeah. and sort of like although I wasn't publicly adored but you know well, I mean well, definitely yeah. watched. Yeah. It did speak to me but I was so aware on that that I didn't have the technical ability and partly I think it was watching Ray Fiennes who was so amazing and technically so brilliant and I was watching it and I was like I do not know how to get from here to there. Mm. And I, I literally don't know how to do that. And he was amazingly helpful, actually, on that. You know, I, I, I think I learned more from him on that, watching what he was doing. The, probably not that I didn't work with wonderful people mm-hmm. before then, but just kind of realising that I didn't understand how he was getting there and that there was something. And I remember him reading books the entire time and he was reading books of the a period and he had everything about his character and he was constantly, constantly, constantly reading. And I think that 
was the first thing that went into my head of like a what's the research that he's mm-hmm. done you know what's the and he also had this ability where the camera would come closer and he would relax and i've just worked with him again mm-hmm. and it is amazing yeah. you know he really does as you get closer and closer and closer in he just relaxes into it and relaxes into it and he he's mesmerizing to watch as an actor mm-hmm. to watch that but at the time i found it utterly terrifying because i knew that i didn't know my shit <laughs> but it's so crazy that you said cuz i remember loving that movie and thinking That's it was good. so great and i but and possibly it's because actually whatever i was going through at the time sort of helped it. well it helped yeah what because she was somebody who i think probably felt quite similar to that you well, know thank you for sacrificing your pain for my, my enjoyment yeah. anytime you know <laughs> and nice dresses so yeah whatever <laughs> so so but that's right after that is when you were like I Again, get out of here. this whole, all I remember is that I was up for a BAFTA for Atonement. Right. And that weirdly, because everyone thought that I would get an Oscar nomination for Atonement. Yes. And it was the best thing in my life that I didn't get an Oscar nomination for Atonement. Why? Because I couldn't have in any way coped with being in front of cameras or I had to, I remember I was, I was really not hadn't been out of the house for sort of three months when the BAFTA nomination and I remember having conversations with my agent and going I I can't get there and everyone going if you don't get to the BAFTAs the heat on you is going to be 10 times more so I actually did hypnotherapy so that I could stand on the red carpet at the BAFTAs and not have a panic attack because that's what it was it was panic attacks that were happening major panic attacks and like I look I can look at those pictures of me on that red carpet and my eyes are just not but it was I literally but the hypnotherapy worked because I could I did stand there and I didn't have a panic attack and I did but when I didn't get the Oscar nomination, mm-hmm. literally everybody was phoning up, congratulating me, going, I'm wow. so happy for you. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and that was literally the moment that I sprinted and, and went. Thank so you. it was an amazing, like, it was, you know, a bummer or whatever, but not in any way a bummer. Right. <laughs> Actually, like, the best thing, because that, that gave me my break of just go, getting And a break was just you going off on your own or were you getting no, I was help or whatever? My, to- yeah, I mean, I got help for a while. Like, so I had a great therapist and then my boyfriend at the time Rupert Friend was absolutely amazing and he was making a film in Paris of Cherie and so I just went and I took French lessons and I I hung around like a student and that was amazing and I could just kind of get out and hide and then we went off to Bali and Malaysia Mm -hmm. and like we did a whole thing and he was super 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 supportive and again just like family and I've always had a good thing where I've always had good boyfriends Mm -hmm. I've been very lucky with the people that I've spent time with in my life they've always been very nice and so like the friendship group and the family just sort of came together and patched me back up and then it was actually after that when I was in Paris that like I said my friend Massey Tajuddine came to Paris and I was like I'm done I can't go back I can't can't do it and she said I'm directing this film last night and you're going to come and do it with me because I'm going to get you through it and that you, was your first thing back and that was my first thing back yeah which was the film last night and then also I think right around then was your first theatrical debut right it was after that yeah after that. but it was yeah so I think I was about 24 so it was only yeah two years after that but there, there came a period of work there that was I, again I can't remember the order but like last night was definitely my first thing back and then I think I did Never Let Me Go right was somewhere around there and The Misanthrope in the theatre right and the misanthrope was fascinating because what I realised had been a major problem on set which I hadn't I hadn't been able to figure out was that I suffered from stage fright and when I was actually physically in front of an audience and I felt afraid it made sense that that's what it was and that I'd feel myself kind of seizing up 
So you're saying even when you had been doing camera work, on camera work. Yeah, I've, I have stage. I mean, I, I suffer from mm-hmm. stage fright, which is completely understandable. Because even though you're on camera, you know, there's still like 100 right. people behind the camera. Right. So you're still actually, it's kind of an audience, even though they're not focused in the same way that a theatrical audience is. It's that I was frightened. And weirdly, I, that hadn't made sense mm-hmm. to me. So a lot of the energy that I'd been putting into roles was this energy to try and push back over this fear. But I'd been putting such a lot to kind of push back that emotionally I couldn't open up in the way that I mm-hmm. wanted to because I was putting this kind of front just to be able to do it up. So, so how do you get past that? Well, you go on stage actually and you figure it out and you just stand there, you know, eight shows a week for mm-hmm. four months. But also a great director, so Thea Sharrock, who is still a very great friend, and she just, she A, took a chance. I mean, took a chance. You know, you got a movie star, you can, you're going to sell tickets, but whatever. She, you know, but took a chance in going, I think you can do this. I think we're going to do it well. And I'm really, really going to take the time and work with you. And she got her then assistant, Rob Ike, who is now a very, very successful theatre director. He was sort of put on me to be my go-to drama teacher person. And he was so interesting because he went, you keep thinking that there's a right way of doing this. You're, you're still the girl at school that wants to get the A star and you have to break that down because you can. the only thing that's going to make this interesting is the mistakes and the being open. So he literally made me like, you know, run around. He was like, okay, we're going to just destroy this room. So you're going to do all of these lines, but I literally, want you to trash the room that we're in and rip these books up and do and so we did all of these exercises which were hugely helpful because again it was just somebody who was actually looking and going that's what this is Mm -hmm. you know and then again just standing on stage and understanding the fear of all of these people watching you and going like what am I going to do and and then actually just accepting that sort of physically and then sort of going on with it but within that play I remember I could get to a certain level with the performance, but I understood that I'd made that performance with such an amount of fear integral to that, that I couldn't ever again get it just that bit above because there was a ceiling that I kept hitting, which was that everything was about the fear of doing it for the first time. So I did my second play actually very soon afterwards because I wanted to break that ceiling that I'd sort of, yeah. yeah. So was that... I'm trying to just, again, keep track of the timetable here because you've said, quote, I suddenly woke up at 25 and was like, it's all okay," And basically stopped giving a shit about the way other people felt about you and criticized you and whatever. But so was that after those theatrical productions? So 25. So I would have been 25 when I was rehearsing. uh, No, wait, maybe I was 26. I can't remember. Anyway. Yeah. But 25. I remember a very distinct moment. And, you know, I've, re- I've read little bits that they say apparently your brain doesn't stop rewiring until you're about 25. So that period, that kind of physiological period of teenagerdom, to, it, it literally is your brain is rewiring. So I'm wondering, I'm making this up, nice. but I'm wondering whether there was just a kind of hormonal and mm-hmm. everything just sort of suddenly went boof. And you felt better. I felt better. Yeah, I felt really good and, and suddenly didn't care. And um, I think, A, you know, I'd been through quite a lot. So yeah. there'd been a lot of buffeting and there'd been a lot of that. And, and so to be able to sit there and kind of go, I feel OK. And I also feel like if I fall down, I can get back up again. And that's kind of a very powerful thing to suddenly go, shit happens. Yeah. And then you stand up. Well, the run of film work since then has been unbelievable. So let's, if we can go through some of the, the real highlights, starting with, 
as you mentioned, Never Let Me Go for Mark Romanek. I remember the unveiling of that in Toronto and people were just very taken with the I mean it was not like any other you couldn't reference another movie and be no. like that's what this which is which I think unfortunately hit it like as a release you yeah, know it was a really it was a really tough one to sell it's about death yeah. and people not running <laughs> away Clones, you know right. it's about clothes <laughs> I loved doing it again. It was working with Kerry, who had, was yeah. then by then a friend. So working with her and in that safe space of kind of, you know, that that was amazing. Andrew Garfield, who's extraordinary. Yeah. So, you know, and it was also, I don't know, I just, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Just a year later was A Dangerous Method, playing this real person who'd lived, Sabina, a hysterical mental patient who came between Young and Freud. Yeah. That one, you gave it a lot of... I gave it a lot. A <laughs> lot of prep, I mean, just research to understand. And I guess it was kind of amazing that a lot of the information about this woman came to light during the making of the film or just before, you know, just some of her diaries the and diaries. stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was amazing because Cronenberg went, I want you for this. And you read it and you're like, really? <laughs> have to play this okay. terrible woman. Yeah, wow. And he just sort of went, I've hired you to do what you do. Go do what you do. Wow. And so I prepared two different ways of doing it. I prepared what would probably be more depressed, but maybe more palatable for the screen. And then doing a lot of research on hysteria, mm -hmm. one that would probably be closer to what the hysteric kind of thing was yeah. and what I loved about it was that I showed him that one that was the nice safe option yeah she, you know probably maybe the film would have done better but whatever <laughs> and then the other fucking crazy one and of course <laughs> the brilliance of Cronenberg is that he was like yeah I do that one yeah which cool. by the way just to remind people I mean you were doing stuff with your face and your jaw and just like it was insane yeah it was it is insane that's one of the probably the most physical it is the most physical. And, you know, he, Cronenberg works in a way where you, you only do one or two takes. And I'm not sure I could have physically done more than one yeah. or two takes. Yeah, it was mental. She always talked about herself being a dog. So she saw herself as like an animal. And she, I mean, she had so much complete disgust for herself. And so I want, and demonic mm -hmm. was the word that came up a lot. And so I wanted something that was really demonic and, and animal-like. And I work with my dialogue coach, who I've now been working with since Pride and Prejudice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and we both, she said, well, the thing is, she said, everybody's obsessed with your mouth, so why don't you try and fuck your mouth up a bit? <laughs> so it sort of came from that as well. There was a physical, we were like, what can I do? And like, how right. can we just kind of, and then again, the reading, the demonic and the, and the dog thing kind of came out with it. And then the trigger words. So, you know, anything that was talking about sex would release this sort of tick that was this weird demonic facial thing. But I I just again I just wanted I wanted to fuck up that face yeah. <laughs> well because you know, when you say everyone's talking about your mouth or whatever that you had literally had directors I, tell you to like don't pout don't or whatever pout. yeah I mean and they were right you know a lot of the early the pout <laughs> with the complete terror of, and my face freezing you know in complete pout and so, you know, a lot of work with Joe, you know, his whole thing, right. just been like, fucking don't, but let's just stop out it. What the fuck <laughs> well, is the I mean, matter with you? It worked up to that point. It made me a lot of money. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was great. But no, so yeah, there'd been a lot, a lot on the lips and the pout. So and I stupidly said, I, I did a joke and then you should never joke when you're doing interviews. You know, I said, you know, when in doubt, pout. And then people started taking that seriously, oh, that that was something that was actually like, Your go -to. my go-to. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> yes. So it was just fun to just fuck it all up, you know, yeah. and you get a lot as a woman that you, the constant thing that was thrown at me was that I was vain and yeah, I'm not saying that I'm not vain, <laughs> but, but, you know, I thought, oh, I really fancy doing something that really just no, messes amazing, with all that, of that. You went 
<laughs> for that one. That yeah, I went it. for that one. Uh, I love and that. I know it almost didn't happen, right? Because there had there the thing that a lot of people oh. unfortunately fixated on was the spankings. Yeah. But that almost deterred you from doing it at all, right? Yeah, no, it was like I didn't want to do I didn't want to be all over the internet and the press being spanked. That was even like were there memes yet at that I point? I don't know, but there yeah. should you know, if yeah. there weren't then there were in my head. I was like, or Oh gifts. god. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so no, I did I did I did sort of go, I don't want to be associated and also, you know, you understand that there's a lot of people with mental illness and that yeah. there are certain images that are going to be fixated on. And so I was like, I don't want to do that. So I think he shot it in a pretty, you know, it's uh, not no, too great. not too bad a spanking. <laughs> Anna Karenina, the third one with Joe Wright, was yep. the next year. So again, just reiterating how this run of the last, whatever, since your return. Since my return. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's unbelievable. But with Anna Karenina, you guys chose to do a very stylized, but also... Yeah. I don't know what the word would be, I'm but not sure it was what the word would be. Either. But you know, it was like it was not your traditional no. period piece biopic. I don't want to say experimental, biopic, but there but, is a sort of experimental sort of you know. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's a really out there, out there, non-naturalistic take. With and, the set, I mean, you there was one thing I read that you were at one point there was some discussion of showing Kira becoming. Anna becoming herself. Oh, yeah, or something. there was a whole fourth wall of yeah. I mean, you know, this is what I love about Joe is that he. I love that he would say, I feel confined by naturalism. And, you know, I think just that idea of sort of there's a way that you make films and there's a way that you're meant to act in films. And, you know, for me, like Dangerous Method broke yeah. that. You're not meant to do that. Yeah. You're meant to do a nice, you know, everything's meant to be very still. Right. And you're meant to maybe twitch a teeny tiny little corner and that's meant to be it. You know, so I, I understood that idea of feeling confined to what we're supposed to do. The three act structure, the it's meant to be shot like this, the close up, the kind of everything is, you know, there's a way that we're all meant to be doing everything and it's meant to be the same and I think he'd he'd sort of been playing with that with atonement with going well I want to do this 40s style of acting I don't want it to be naturalistic mm -hmm. I want it to go back to this kind of clipped mm -hmm. thing so it made sense to me when he said okay I mean partly look it was budgetary I mean yeah. the, the idea had been to do a naturalistic version and the budget was twice what we had so you suddenly had to he had to get creative it's like dogville <laughs> yeah I mean you know and and I was totally I was totally up for it. I was yeah. just like, okay, okay, let's right. do, let's do it. Yeah, sure, we should do that sex scene and dance. Or like, <laughs> okay, fine, you know. And I loved it. I loved that film. I think, you know, it's a really tricky thing when you make something like that and it doesn't necessarily, everybody doesn't yeah. go, my God, that's brilliant. But enough people do yeah. and go, God, that's a really interesting. I mean, there's not another film like it. No. And I'm not sure that, there ever will be <laughs> you know but it was a very very exciting thing to be a part of I think for Joe it's probably quite a tricky one because for what it it does work mm -hmm. and I think it's tricky for directors when they make something like that that is extraordinary mm -hmm. and it doesn't quite get yeah, yeah. you know the because I think you then start questioning everything mm -hmm. and I hope that he continues to explore because I think it's very exciting when directors do want to you think you guys will do another I have no idea. I don't know. Not for a while, yeah. I think. But I, I was a great fan of that film. Yeah. One of the ones that I love the most, I get the sense you have mixed feelings about, which I want to, but I, I saw it. <laughs> oh, I'm guessing which one this is going to be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was, well, when I saw it, it was called Can a Song Save Your Life? Yes. Then it became Begin Again. This is you, Mark Ruffalo, Haley Steinfeld, a lot of very good music. 
we don't see you that often in a contemporary set story. That was one yeah. kind of an upbeat story. We too, far too often have seen you die or something at the end yeah. of a movie. Yeah. Oh my God, a happy one? <laughs> wow, this is right. amazing. I yeah. mean, I just remember thinking it was great, but then getting the sense that there were there was some issues. issues. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the first time and I'm laying no blame mm-hmm. at any door, but it was the first time that I hadn't got on with the director. Mm-hmm. And it became apparent very early on. Yeah. And I don't think that that can have been nice for anyone on that set. <laughs> and it certainly wasn't nice for me mm-hmm. or for John. And I think it took us both by surprise. But it was probably one of the most difficult mm-hmm. experiences that I've had making a film. Can you watch the movie and, and see that it's No, you know, I saw, I, saw it, I saw it at Toronto yeah. and I was like, look, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. I think it's lovely. And actually, you know, sometimes you're like, wow, that was n- not a nice experience. Again, not laying any blame. And right. and Mark Ruffalo is one of the loveliest men in the world. Mm-hmm. And I loved working with him and I loved working with Adam. And just for whatever chemical reason, me and John did not get right. on. And I think for all of us, how amazing just as people that we've managed to make this thing that actually Even with- if you're watching it you would never guess no, never. Was, and it does actually achieve all those things right. where you're like wow that makes me feel great and it's lovely and and what a lovely thing you know and, and a song that you sang got nominated for an original song Oscar an, an Oscar and-, and yeah and everything you know but sometimes so what I'm glad about yes. in that is the professional side of it even though it was very difficult <laughs> we still managed to battle through and make something that was lovely yes. which was the intention yes but yes it wasn't the easiest <laughs> <laughs> that same year was the imitation game which yeah. I think was a different sort of experience this was you're playing the Joan, the the lone female cryptologist among the people who broke the Enigma code of the Nazis, also briefly the fiance of Alan Turing, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. You got nominated for every award there is on that one. Yep. Another one like Begin Again that was handled by the late Weinstein Company. The thing that he was famous for was, among other things, working with his talent and working his talent to be out there that time of year, the yeah. award season. Just the making of and then the promotion of that movie, what, what's your memory of that? The making of was wonderful because I'd worked with Benedict on, on Atonement. He's a friend. It really is very nice working with friends. Yeah. You know, it was a wonderful group of all of the guys, Matthew Good and I've oh completely blanking on everybody's name, but it was such a nice, really lovely group of people. So, and I think we all just felt like we really wanted that story to be out there. You know, I'd read first read about Turing in a in a, a Guardian article and thought, oh, how do we not know about, mm-hmm. you know, this man? So I think that there was just that sense that all of us were just like, this guy was wronged and he needs to, you know, we want to kind of bring this thing. So so the the making of it was great. And just, you know, working with Benedict again and he's a wonderful actor yeah. and that was you know, fabulous. And then it was a, a Weinstein production. <laughs> and what a production. You know, my experience of working with Weinstein was that he was absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any, I'd, you know, I'd heard about all of the rumours that were going on, but I can only speak for my own thing. And You'd heard of that about, like, with women or just that he's an no, asshole? No, I'd heard that he was an asshole. Yeah. And I'd heard that he was a bully yeah. and that he screamed a lot and liked phoning people up in the right. middle of the night. So I always made sure that my phone was off. And, you know, I never had a <laughs> meeting alone with him. Yeah. I knew about that, but fuck, no, I didn't know that he was raping people. I mean, yeah, Jesus no, Christ, you no. know, I mean, and I, I think I heard that he was a womanizer. I mean, it was obviously he was right, a womanizer, right, right. but it, but no, I mean, that level is just, 
horrific. But, you know, I think, again, I how old was I, 29? I didn't need him to no, make my career. No, you know, no. I wasn't in one of those positions of those women that you're really kind of going, At this could time, be the start of something. His you know, company it was like, needed you more than... Well, yeah, I was yeah. very much like, look, I mean, I can take you or leave you, it's fine. Right, right. And that was obviously the way to work with him. Yeah. But, but for people who needed him, obviously he completely... Completely another well, well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> well, there are so many other things I, I could ask you about, including I, I was lucky enough to see your Broadway debut with Judith Light and all these other yeah. great people in Teresa Rican. But we're coming to the main attraction, Colette. It premiered in Sundance, just saw you now in Toronto with it there where it went over great. Yep. Directed by Wash Westmoreland from a script he and his late partner Richard Glatzer co-wrote. They also did Still Alice, which worked out nicely for Julianne Moore. At a certain point, there is a interesting pattern, which I know you've been asked about before, but I just want to ask you, you know, if you can psychoanalyze yourself. You are seem drawn to and also do a lot of your best work in period pieces. I do. Why is that? <sighs> I look good in the clothes. <laughs> you just like being I just in. like being in yeah. the clothes. They have been the best characters that I have been offered, hands down. I mean, I don't completely know why that is, but I, for years, was trying not to do them. And I was just like, how do you turn down... How do you turn down atonement? How do you turn down any of these characters? Mm -hmm. You can't. It has to be about the character. And for me, like a lot of the stuff that I was offered in modern day things. Now, obviously, look, we all see all of the films. So obviously other people are being offered great parts mm -hmm. in modern day things. But for me, it was always the supportive wife or the supportive girlfriend or the fucking character that's <laughs> raped after 10 scenes and then killed, you know. And I was just like, I don't know for the sake of not doing a costume drama and not playing these amazing characters why right. I would turn that down to play a supportive girlfriend to some dude. Right. I'm supportive at home. I don't want to be supportive. <laughs> I don't want to, no, I don't want to do to do that at work. <laughs> so I think there's been an element of that. I mean, if I really look at the films that have influenced me the most... Yeah. And the ones that I've gone back to again and again, you know, it it would be Lorraine Margot. It would be Remains of the Day and Howard's End and those Sense and Sensibility, you know. But then they're all very strong female leads. Yeah. So they were always the ones when I was a kid that I would watch. I mean, as well as The Godfather, which right, I was right, completely right. and utterly obsessed with. But even that, I suppose, is a period right, piece. Right. So I think there's something in the imagination that, you know, there's a lot of freedom in a period film because we don't know what it was like back then, really. True. So, and they can really speak to the present, even if they're set in the past. I think the yeah. amazing thing about Colette is that it, along with The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and The Wife and several things that are hitting right now, yeah. even though their period pieces set in the past, they're about brilliant Which women who had right been now. kept down, who then assert themselves and thrive. Yeah. I and, think you can almost be more overtly political and have an audience feel less like they've been hit over the head with, with it. The lesson, yeah. Because you go, oh, how weird. This is kind of resonating with me somehow, you know, particularly with Colette right now, you know, the talk about gender politics and sexual yeah, politics and amazing. feminism and everything, you know, and you go, whoa, this is what I'm reading about every day and what I'm thinking about. And suddenly there's this film that's sort of doing it as well. As you look back on this one and, you know, it sounds like you don't like to watch your work that much, but I no. guess that when a movie is being rolled out, you're going to see it more than other times. Mm. Looking back, what was the greatest challenge of this one? Was there a scene, an aspect of the character? This one was challenging just because of the, you know, we're now in a period of time where the budgets are almost half what they were 10 years ago. So this one was made for 11 million, if you think like Pride and Prejudice was made for 20. So you're just 
you're making it in about a month less. So this was a seven week shoot. And that's a lot to get done in a seven week, particularly with a period thing and a costume thing. And, you know, so just the time constraint is you just have to be on your game. You really don't get more than five takes. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be in there. I really like that. I like the kind of I get quite bored on a big set when there's a lot of sitting around. So I like kind of being constantly, yeah, yeah, constantly moving. But that and the heat were the most difficult things because it was really hot. It looks like it. Really, 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 really hot. So you can't fake that. No. And, you know, trying to remember lines where you're literally thinking, I'm melting and I can't remember anything I'm saying. So that was the challenges. But otherwise, you know, I loved working with Dominic. I think he's such a wonderful actor and he's so sparkly and kind of charming and wicked. Dominic from The the Wire, among others, and The Affair and whatever. Yeah, no. So Uh, that was fun. We've now spent an hour going, dissecting your entire know, life and career. Oh, terrifying. <laughs> no, it's been, I mean, it's, it really, you packed a lot into the first, first third, yeah. uh, whatever. But I guess at this particular moment, taking a little time to kind of look back at it all, what's your sense of it all? And just, can you now kind of feel better about things that at the time, you know, you weren't allowing yourself to, to feel good about and, yeah. and also looking forward? I mean, a lot of things have changed in the last few years. You're... A wife, a mother, uh, yeah. you know, all these other things. So looking forward, what's your outlook, if that's not too big a... Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, looking back, I can really enjoy things now. You know, and, and I, I look back and I just sort of want to give myself a hug and be like, oh, you're doing all right. You'll be all right. You know, um, no, I, I think the the main thing and the thing that I'm very proud of myself for is I've learned my trade. I did it very publicly, but I have learned my trade mm-hmm. and technically... I'm pretty good, you know, whatever you need me to do, I can pretty much, I can deliver it. I want to get better and I'm not saying that there's not a way to go and I want to keep learning and keep pushing myself, but I'm in a good place where I feel pretty confident about what I can do and what I can deliver and, and you know, and I really look forward to working with people that can challenge me a bit more because quite often people kind of stand back and go, oh, you know what you're doing and actually what I really like is when somebody throws something at me that I, you know, I can now embrace the side that is slightly terrifying and, you know, in a way that would I would have felt crippled by sort of 10 years ago. And also I've now got like a body of people who I've worked with who I've really loved and had a great time with. And, you know, and you learn that you have some crap experiences and you'll have some good experiences and you can stand up from the crap experiences. And some of the stuff will work and some of the stuff won't work. And you want it all to work, but sometimes shit happens. And (laughs) that's kind of, you know, that's that's all right as well. So I think I'm pretty kind of chilled out in the outlook of of it all and I just sort of look forward to working with people that can challenge me and again just trying to get better and trying to improve because that's the fun of it you know as far as what comes next and the changes in life I mean yeah my kid is going to school next year and I don't know how that works but then I didn't really know as soon as she came out how any of it was going to work and we seem to be three years in and somehow it's worked and I'm still going and I'm still working and she's brilliant and you know so and we're I'm still married which is slightly miraculous you know but I think I'm trying to learn that I don't have any control over anything. I don't think any of us really do. And with being a parent, I think you really understand that you really don't have any control over anything (laughs) and that you just sort of have to go with the flow. So I hope that there will be good things and good people in the future. I'm not quite sure what they are yet, but we will see. Look forward to it. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.